Welcome to Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, and listeners from around the world. I am Raymond Perez, and this is In Progress, the number one political radio show at the Johns Hopkins University. For now. Okay, so it's probably Friday, May 28th when you're watching this. Now, of course, we don't have time for a theme song today because I'm going to very quickly announce a few little changes to the show and how it works. So, number one, basically I'm going to split up the show into three separate segments. 30 minutes on U.S. politics, 20 minutes on world politics, and 10 minutes on whatever I want. It's going to be different things, and perhaps those minutes are going to change when I want them to. Okay, so I'm excited, and you should be too, because the New York Times is reporting that Joe Biden, yes, the President of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., perhaps, is to propose a $6 trillion, with a T, dollar budget to make the United States more competitive. Now, that's an interesting way to put it, but that is how they are putting it. Uh, okay, so the first thing is, number one, this is actually different from a lot of other sources that I have heard. Um, the $6 trillion number is higher than many have reported, frankly. Uh, I've heard numbers ranging from, like, the $2 trillion up to the $8 trillion, but it seems as if right now it's going to be $6 trillion, and that makes sense given the real issues that face the United States. So the $6 trillion budget is a major, major proposal because, number one, remember, this is really funny, but remember when people were saying that Joe Biden was going to do some crazy austerity, the austerity Joe crowd. I mean, these people range from like Kyle Kalinske, who doesn't, who really takes from other progressive news shows, so I can't really fault him. But from Kyle Kalinske's to say the crystal balls of the world, they were saying that Joe Biden is going to be this crazy austerity monger, not really doing anything, not really knowing anything. But it seems as if Joe Biden is not going to be austerity Joe, at least for the moment. Because we are seeing $6 trillion in federal spending. Now, what does that mean? So, the first thing is that this does not mean we're going to see a $6 trillion budget deficit. To be clear, a budget deficit is how much, is how much spending uh, outpaces revenues. So, revenues, of course, are gotten via taxes, primarily via taxes, taxes on income, taxes on uh, payroll tax, uh, taxes on, let's say, tariffs, etc., now, that puts us at a budget deficit of around $1.8 trillion. Now, that's major. Remember that this budget deficit is probably going to be the largest since maybe, let's say, uh, the 1940s, um, which was when the Second World War occurred, of course. Now, the federal budget deficit, of course, is reaching major heights. Major heights. Is this good or bad? Well, it depends on what side of the aisle you're on. Some say we need fiscal responsibility, meaning uh, don't spend, which is a bit questionable. But then you have the people who say, uh, spend as much as you want, spend more. These people are sometimes called the uh, MMT crowd, MMT being modern monetary theory. Now, of course, I'm not a modern monetary theory individual, uh, to use a very, very euphemistic term, um, primarily because I actually have a brain and I, you know, studied economics in school, so I know that MMT is not necessarily uh, something that we should be looking at at the moment. Now, MMT is this idea that the government can basically spend as much as it wants. Its only constraint is inflation, and inflation can be reduced by increasing taxes on the private sector because that stops them from spending as much money as, as 
possible, and that really drives inflation. Now, modern monetary theory, to be clear, uh, has some theoretical uh, support. However, the question is whether it works practically. Um, but you basically do need taxes at this point to increase, according to many on the neo-Keynesian side. And we're beginning to see some of these neo-Keynesians crawl out of their uh, of their holes, like Larry Summers, who is sometimes considered a neo-Keynesian. I don't particularly know whether he is the best uh, person to be talking about uh, at this moment, because he has been claiming for years that we're going to see massive inflation. Uh, but, you know, we're not really seeing massive inflation. Okay, excuse me. We are seeing actually raise uh, heightened inflation. But is that a result of this massive spending that we're seeing? Well, it's questionable. Uh, we saw massive spending last year, and there wasn't that much inflation. And that, uh, that spending, of course, came from uh, the CARES Act, for instance, and, and other acts that were passed after that to deal with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that, of course, we saw last year, if you weren't aware of that. Now... This year, we are beginning to see, number one, American Rescue Plan, American Jobs Plan, all these different plans that are coming out, so many plans. And the main thing that they're trying to do is they're trying to, uh, as, as you saw with the COVID relief bill, they really are trying to change how we view uh, not only the government's role, which is now, I, I assume, to uh, to provide in times of crisis, as, as Joe Biden, of course, did in a massive way with this $1,400 check. That was supposedly a $2,000 check, but let's put that aside. And a variety of other different things like the child tax credits that are beginning to come back in full force. Now, the government is trying to support families, which is, in my opinion, the best thing that they can do. As you may or may not know, the primary uh, politics that I hold tends to support uh, family planning, which is important at this time. Uh, especially because we're beginning to see, again, an increase in uh, child tax credits, an increase in um, in subsidies for families. And that's definitely important. So this $6 trillion budget is going to be composed of quite a few things that were already seen uh, in future and past bills. Now, here is something extremely important. Is this $6 trillion budget going to pass as is? Uh, now, this budget also provides for corporate tax hikes, um, not up to the 35% that was proposed under, or that was the rate under President Obama, but definitely not as low as the 21% that it is under Trump. I believe they're talking 28%, but it might even fall to 25% uh, because Senator Joe Manchin uh, who is the senator, of course, from West Virginia, and other moderate Democrats. Um, Mark Warner comes to mind. Uh, I think John Tester comes to mind, but I don't know if John Tester, who is the senator from Montana, which is a red state, of course. Uh, I think John Tester is has problems with something else in the bill. I forget precisely what. But his issues... But these issues are beginning to impact the Democratic majority in itself. So the question is, can Joe Biden push the budget through not only... Um, the 50 votes in uh, in the Senate, but also the votes in the House, because you have different uh, groups in the House that oppose this bill. For instance, you have um, these moderate Democrats in the House, some of them who represent these large districts who want to increase the SALT tax deduction. The SALT tax deduction, by the way, is uh, SALT stands for state and local tax. And basically in like very blue areas, uh, they tend to have high tax rates. And uh, under a provision in the tax law, you 
are able to deduct some portion of state and local tax from your federal tax liability. Now, that specific tax may or may not be inside this new budget, but Biden is sort of against this increase in the salt tax deduction, but many moderate Democrats represent, say, New York City, San Francisco, oh, Pelosi represents San Francisco, but uh, some of these other very high standard of living, but also very high tax uh, districts, they may oppose uh, a budget that passes without an increase in the salt tax deduction. Which, by the way, Donald Trump lowered the salt tax deduction, even though the tax bill that he passed was, of course, a giveaway to the rich. He lowered it because, uh, generally, Democrats who are rich generally benefit from the salt tax deduction, so that's why he lowered it. But now you're beginning to see a question of, does Joe Biden give a, uh, give a giveaway to the rich Democrats who supported him, or does he stand by this sort of progressive belief that generally you want taxes to fall greater on the rich rather than the rich be able to deduct their high taxes? That's a, that's a question that we're going to see later, um, and that's going to be a massive, massive fight towards the end of this budget process. Now, to be even more clear, this budget process is, again, going to have a lot of issues going forward. So when I say right now, Raymond Perez is saying, well, the New York Times is saying, but Raymond Perez is, is reporting. Well, I'm not reporting. I'm just, I guess, talking. But regardless, the question is, will Joe Biden, will he have this $6 trillion budget through House, Senate, and signed by the POTUS? The question is, maybe not. Um, and we're going to see what happens there. Now, Joe Biden... President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. is actually, and this is true, beginning to whittle down what this budget actually proposes, and we'll talk about that next. Make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel In Progress with Raymond Perez. Yes, true. Please subscribe and like and comment if you're watching on the YouTube. Or don't, but do. Now, let's move on to the Joe Biden budget proposal and the failures that we're beginning to see from Joe Biden's, let's say, lackluster budget proposal. So if you were watching the full podcast, you may have remembered just one minute ago that I was talking about Joe Biden's budget proposal in 2021 for the 2022 fiscal year, of course. Now, this one was a $6 trillion budget, but I would not be a progressive if I did not hold Joe Biden accountable. And to be clear, let's talk about Jeff Stein's Amazing reporting from the Washington Post. White House budget plan set to leave out some healthcare proposals from campaign. Now, if you remember this during the Joe Biden campaign in 2020 that he won by, let's say, a landslide, a very huge landslide. He won 306-232 and he ran on something that a lot of Democrats loved, just loved. The public option. Now, the public option is... A little bit less progressive than Medicare for All proposal that was pushed by Senator Bernie Sanders. Of course, of course, Bernard Sanders was pushing for this beautiful Medicare for All uh, bill. And also Senator Elizabeth Warren, of course, she didn't really, well, <laughs> let's not get into the Warren Medicare for All plan. That was a massive, massive failure. But not only was Bernie Sanders, not only was Elizabeth Warren pushing for it, but Kamala Harris was, and I'm doing air quotes here, pushing for it, pushing for it. Now, of course, Senator Senator Harris, uh, or Vice President Harris now, but Senator Harris then, was, of course, Senator from California, and perhaps maybe a little bit too beholden to certain interests that we could consider, let's say, corporate, uh, and especially that was true in the healthcare arena. So Senator Kamala Harris was not necessarily pro or anti-Medicare for All. She was pro 
Medicare for All, like, at the beginning. And then someone asked her, hey, what about private insurance? And then she went against it. Who cares? That's kind of done right now. Because Joe Biden said public option, and he won the campaign, correct? So you would expect, because the Democrats love health care, they love talking about health care, even though, let's be quite honest, people don't love talking about health care, uh, especially because when someone named President Barack Obama, Obama, according to some, Obama, according to others, President Obama decided to, let's say, pass something that some called Obamacare, but was, of course, originally named the Affordable Care Act, which was perhaps not affordable for some. Now, he passed that, and of course, massive, massive failures in the House, in the Senate, over and over and over. It was silly. It was almost cartoonish how watered down it became. It literally became the Romney proposal that, that Romney pushed in Massachusetts. This really did cause the collapse of the supermajority that the Democrats had in the House and in the Senate. Uh, you saw a massive backlash known as the Tea Party Movement, especially in the House. And maybe Joe Biden does not want to touch health care for that reason, because he was in, he was he was right there with President Barack Obama when they pushed health care and collapsed massively. Now, the Biden health care proposal would have been a public option, as I noted. Uh, the public option, we can discuss that at, at a later point in time. Let's just know for right now, if you don't know what the public option is, it is a sort of kind of halfway uh, public halfway private. Now, a lot of people throw garbage at the public option. They say it's terrible, it's bad, it's going to kill millions of people. That's kind of silly, right? Uh, many, many countries have a public option, uh, and just a public option, and it's generally considered universal healthcare. So, this idea that every civilized country, to, to go into a Jimmy Dore mode, every civilized country but the United States has socialized healthcare. Not true. Or has Medicare for all, I think he says, which is even sillier because I think he even noted himself. That, that's not true. But regardless, uh, many countries have a public option, and many countries who have a public option actually implement it well, to be clear. Now, the public option is kind of uh, important for the Biden legacy because Obama wanted to push it, and he couldn't get it done. And Joe, and Joe Biden, who really does have the shadow of Barack Obama just sort of looming over him, um, he really does have to question public option or no public option. And it seems right now he's not going for the public option yet. Now, for some reason, many people are saying that just because Joe Biden is going to push through a budget that is $6 trillion um, and it's not going to have the public option, that means that Joe Biden doesn't really want the public option. Eh, that's questionable. That's questionable. Um, most, if not all, presidents have not gotten everything they wanted done. And I really do think that Joe Biden was at least nominally supportive of a public option. And I think he really did support having a public option um, really put into place. Now, the other question is, okay, maybe you don't do a public option, which is fine, okay, um, because you don't want to touch healthcare, and healthcare is this major, major um, third rail in American politics that you don't want to touch. Okay, who cares? The real issue is his is that he's kind of abandoning this pledge to cut prescription drug costs. Now, the prescription drug debacle has really been occurring for years and years and years. Um, I think, I remember this major bill by uh, Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar uh, that was supposed to cut prescription drug costs. Um, I remember that became a big deal on the campaign trail uh, in the 2020 primary. Now, you also had Donald Trump saying that he was going to do that. You had a lot of different people saying a lot of different things about this. But Joe Biden really did put his proposal down and say, we are going to cut prescription drug costs. It doesn't seem like he's doing that at the moment, which is definitely an issue. Because Joe Biden does need to push through something um, in terms of healthcare in order to come back to the base and say, hey, 
I actually got something done on healthcare. I'm trying to, maybe a Joe Biden impression could work better there. Listen up, Jack. I'll do a healthcare, and you're going to like it. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's not a good Joe Biden impression. Maybe I will never do it again. I mean, I, I think my Trump impression is really good. But the Joe Biden proposal for the public option and for prescription drug costs is not, not in uh, the trillion-dollar budget that he is proposing. And to be clear, he's proposing a lot of spending. Um, last year, we had a, we had a budget deficit of $3 trillion, which is a lot, but that's primarily because of the pandemic and the recession. Um, but Joe Biden, even on top of that, is proposing $4 trillion in, um, in new government spending. However, he is also on the opposite side proposing trillions in tax hikes, um, especially in the corporate tax, in order to uh, raise more revenue. Now, as I hinted at earlier, many moderate Democrats are opposing these tax hikes, even though some are saying we need the tax hikes in order to ensure less inflation. Some Democrats are opposing this. Now, um, to be very clear, the Democrats that are opposing this are moderates. They tend to be moderates. Uh, for instance, you have Senator Joe Manchin, who opposes the 28% corporate tax rate. Uh, and Joe Manchin, of course, being a senator from West Virginia, there's not many corporations in West Virginia that really care about that. However, there are, of course, interest groups that will be donating and will be pushing, let's say, Senator Manchin uh, for his re-election campaign in 24. They're trying to see whether Manchin can be a moderate and he can come back to West Virginia saying, I did not give in to the Democratic Party. So perhaps Manchin has his own issues there. However, it's kind of questionable to see whether the voters of West Virginia really care about the corporate tax rate in the sense that they want it to be lower. That's questionable. Now, not only that, you have Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who really isn't, he really doesn't have a case for being worried about uh, the taxes that he's worried about, which, by the way, is a capital gains hike on people making more than $1 million. Uh, and Senator um, Mark Warner from Virginia also is disapproving of this capital gains hike. Now, uh, what is the capital gains tax um, and why is it being hiked? Now, in very simple terms, the capital gains tax is a tax on profit made by selling certain assets, certain derivatives like stocks, bonds, etc. And uh, Joe Biden wants to raise the capital gains tax on people making more than $1 million. Now, that is a little bit of an issue for people who are upset at let's say, the liberal Democrats for supporting these tax hikes. That's not just Senator Bob Menendez, not just Senator Mark Warner, even Senator John Tester from Montana opposing these uh, capital gains taxes. Uh, of course, you also have others like um, Senator John Tester, again, who is questioning the raise uh, on the estate tax that is uh, beginning to be considered by Joe Biden. Um, so there are a lot of different issues. Uh, I mentioned the salt tax, I think, in the last segment, maybe in this segment, I don't know, uh, because I record all of these at once. Um, but you are beginning to see a major push um, both ways on what is happening, specifically regarding the Biden tax plans. So it's not just that Biden is moving back on the public option, not just that he's moving back on prescription drugs. He is now also beginning to see a major, major pushback from the congressional Democrats on the Biden tax plan, which is going to be raising taxes on the rich. That is kind of upsetting. That is extremely disappointing. And as someone who supported Joe Biden from the very beginning, I did not support him from April 2020 or 2019, I think when he declared, but from the very beginning of when it was okay to support Joe Biden, um, I think this is extremely worrying. And we need, need to hold Joe Biden accountable when it comes to Washington Post, when it comes to the New York Times, and their reporting on what Joe Biden is doing. We must not only read them, but also uh, definitely call senators, call representatives, and push 
for Joe Biden to keep raising taxes on the rich and to keep uh, the public option and the prescription drug bills on his mind over the next four years. Remember to go to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez in order to follow me on Instagram. I will follow you back at Real Raymond Perez. In order to follow me on Twitter, I will follow you back at Real R Perez. And in order to subscribe to my YouTube channel, In Progress with Raymond Perez, where I can't really subscribe to you back, but if you subscribe, you'll get something. By that, I mean great, amazing, beautiful videos. Okay, let's move on into the next segment. Now, let's remember to go to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez, a beautiful place, a great website, perhaps the best online, perhaps other than the YouTube channel in progress with Raymond Perez, because if you subscribe to the YouTube, you can't miss. This is really weird. People people email me all the time. People beg, can you miss a show when you subscribe to the YouTube? Yes, you can, by the way. But if you subscribe, you make that much less likely, and you will see beautiful, beautiful programming from In Progress with Raymond Perez. So now let's move on to my favorite segment, Grifter of the Week, where we discuss a massive grift that is occurring. And right now, this grift is so shocking. Uh, you have a sort of failing news media, let's say, especially on the right. And right now you're seeing a collapse in viewership for some of these far-right loony conspiracy news networks, especially uh, one that goes by the name of Newsmax TV. Now, right now, we are focusing on Steve Cortez and his Cortez and Pellegrino program that airs on Newsmax. I forget when. Of course, I don't think you want to watch it, but let's say... I don't know, 6 p.m. Actually, looking at the notes here, it is 9 p.m., so just upside down, 6. If you really want to watch it, you don't want to miss it, it's 9 p.m. Now, Steve Cortez is really looking for some more viewers because Newsmax is getting less and less and less as the weeks go on. Uh, they, of course, went all in on this Stop the Steal movement because, of course, Donald Trump could not admit that he lost in a, let's say, a landslide, a massive landslide. Now, he lost majorly, and he is still uh, coping, as some would say, and you're beginning to see him reemerge uh, from his hiding place, which is in Mar-a-Lago. Of course, he left Mar-a-Lago, moved to, uh, I believe, New Jersey. Now, Donald Trump is, we haven't discussed this, but he is facing a lot of different issues. Uh, for instance, he's facing a grand jury indictment um, in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, I think, uh, with Cy Vance. Um, but it actually could be Letitia James in the New York Attorney General's Office. Of course, Letitia James herself had been uh, prosecuting, not prosecuting, excuse me, investigating uh, Andrew Cuomo, also investigating Donald Trump, moved to a criminal investigation, uh, I believe, in this past week. So Donald Trump is facing many, many crises. And yet, he sits down with Steve Cortez for an exclusive, exclusive interview. And we will watch it now. Let's see. Mr. President, thank you for sitting down with us. Uh, this experiment of Joe Biden as president, it's only been four months. And in a short four months, America is enduring numerous crises, both abroad and at home. It seems our country is deteriorating very fast, even faster than I would have thought your reaction. Okay, so right now, you have Steve Cortez really claiming that these crises, I guess, began under Joe Biden, because I assume that you just didn't see, I guess, COVID under President Trump. You may not have seen this massive depression under President Trump. You may not have seen this massive, really, this movement for racial justice uh, under President Trump. And you're also definitely not seeing, I don't know, an insurrection. Let's just throw that one out there. Under 
President Donald J. Trump, of course, former president, because he lost in a massive landslide. He lost Arizona. He lost Georgia, which no Republican has lost, I believe, since uh, 1970s. Um, he's lost many different states, massive dumps in Arizona, massive dumps in Georgia that are really bringing him down. And right now, I guess it's Joe Biden's fault. Let's hear it. Well, it's pretty obvious. You look at what's going to happen is even scarier. The border is a disaster. We had the strongest border we've ever had. and with Wow, a very strong border, strongest border we've ever had. Now, Donald Trump, of course, claiming that there was a strong border when actually border crossings uh, are up under Joe Biden, of course. Let's, let's say that. But very clearly, the reason why they're up is because, number one, it's a seasonal uh, rotation. Number two, you have a sort of backlog that has been building up since COVID. Of course, COVID was not great for border crossings for obvious reasons. And now you're beginning to see an increase in border crossings under Joe Biden because of this backlog that has been built up. Okay, let's continue. Within a month, uh, it became the weakest. And now you have tens of thousands of people flowing into our countries. Mm -hmm. and many True. are criminals, frankly, released really? from jails. Criminals, okay. In numerous countries, we have people coming in from the Middle East. We have people coming Whoa. in from everywhere. What does this mean? People coming in from the Middle East? Is this like something new under Joe Biden? Did Donald Trump ban travel from, let's say, the Middle East? Really, I, I, wonder, I wonder why he did that. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so Joe Biden has sort of destroyed this this, this Trump travel ban, of course, it was a Muslim travel ban, then he had his little meltdown in the Supreme Court, Supreme Court filed a stop order, etc. And you began to see him say, well, it really wasn't, excuse me, Trump impression. Well, it really wasn't a Muslim ban, I'll tell you, it wasn't a Muslim ban. And now, he is crying, shaking, actually, because Joe Biden has lifted this ban. Of course, he claimed that he was going to do it on the, on the campaign trail. So I don't really know why Donald Trump is so upset about this. But let's continue watching. You go to the airport, you have to show how you're doing. You come through the southern border and you just walk in. We had the strongest southern border ever, and it's very sad to see. Uh, the wall was so important. You know, we built... Yeah, the, I guess, 15 miles of wall that he built. Almost 500 miles of wall. Really? The 500 miles of wall? You mean the 500 miles of wall that were already built that were just uh, that were just re renovated? Um, that, I think, was even 350 miles. I don't, I don't think it was that much. I know we built 15 miles of new wall according to, I believe, the Washington Post, uh, but definitely not 500 miles of wall. Um, I think he, he planned 500 miles of wall, but it wasn't 500 miles. And within a month, it would have been finished, and they ended it. They ended it. Right. Really, they ended the border wall because there's a different party in power? That's really shocking. I thought elections had consequences. Two and a half years to get the approvals to do it. I had to go to court. I had to do everything. We got the approvals. And so you have open spots, and it's ridiculous. I hear they're going to close them up, but now... It's a big deal with the contractors because those deals were those those transactions were made. It was all complete. I'm actually extremely shocked that he said that he would pay the contractors. It's not something that Donald Trump normally does. But you look at so many other things. Uh, it's very sad to see what's happening. Inflation is going to be a big problem. It's going to drive a lot of things up and down, whichever is worse. Because no, 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 Mr. Former President, uh, that's not how that works. Inflation drives things up, not not necessarily down. It's called deflation. It's uh, bad things happen with inflation. <laughs> it's also it's also really funny how he says uh, up or down depending on depending on which is worse. Like, really? So it's going to go it's going to go down if that's worse. So really, he's operating from the idea that Biden is bad, and then he's doing motivated reasoning. Oh, then inflation is bad because it actually drives prices down. Because if it drives prices up, it might be good. Uh, okay, crazy Donald Trump, of course, being crazy. But let's hear what he has to say. But you see that happening all over lumber, the cost of lumber, the cost of gasoline. You look at gasoline. What 
So the cost of gasoline is going up. That is true, number one, because of ha- Russian hackers. These Russian hackers, by the way, they didn't hack and they don't, they don't hack. Uh, but not only Russian hackers, you have, um, <laughs> sorry, that Russian hacker thing was, was kind of a joke, but I am talking about, um, the pipeline incident that we saw, uh, I believe two weeks ago. But also you have, um, the fact that people are driving now because COVID is not a disaster. It's not a disaster. Like, uh, of course, Biden's border crisis. Um, now you have, Increased gas prices because of increased demand for gas because people are going out more. Uh, so that's why that is occurring. I'm just doing a little bit fast forwarding and let's play. So a lot of bad things are happening. I don't think we're respected in the world right now. Of course, you were very respected under President Donald Trump, who was, of course, laughed at very famously by basically every leader that was allied to the United States. Um, not only laughed at by our allies, but also by our enemies. Let's see. Uh, there were never moves on Taiwan by China. Now you have bombers flying over Taiwan. Really, there was just never moves on Taiwan by China, really. It, it's, it's almost as if Joe Biden created this uh, split between... Joe Biden was actually the architect of the Chinese Civil War. Of course, Joe Biden was fighting for the for the uh, People's Liberation Army against the Kuomintang and had them exiled to Taiwan. That is actually Joe Biden's doing. Taiwan. Russia would have never encircled Ukraine. Russia... Russia continued antagonizing Ukraine under the Trump presidency. Like they did. Uh, Kim Jong-un was somebody that I had a great relationship with. We weren't going to have any problem with him, in my opinion. And now you look at what's going on there. A lot of bad things are happening. So basically, the entire North Korea crisis is Joe Biden's fault because, of course, Donald Trump, big brain Donald Trump, really was a very stable genius, uh, as someone would say. And wouldn't North Korea actually support Joe Biden, because Joe Biden's a communist socialist in North Korea, under Kim Jong-un, is also a communist socialist crazy dictatorship, just like Joe Biden. So elections are basically completely fake in America, as well as North Korea. So basically, according to Donald Trump, Joe Biden should be best friends with Kim Jong-un. Seems like he's not, and I wonder why. Okay, so that was a little discussion of Steve Cortez's interview on Newsmax with crazy former president. Very upset. Donald J. Trump. And you can watch more of that if you look up Donald Trump Newsmax interview. Uh, I think it aired on May 25th. And uh, if you want to see more of that, I I wouldn't recommend doing it. But it's just an interesting look into crazy right-wing media as we begin to move further through the Biden presidency. Now, the question is, is Donald Trump going to stay as this uh, leader of the Republican Party? Or is this more moderate wing of the Republican Party coming back. Now, the answer, as I'm sure you've seen with the dismissal of Liz Cheney, with uh, with the booing of Mitt Romney, that's never going to happen. And the Republican Party is the party of Donald Trump. And grifters like Steve Cortez will ensure that that takes place. And by the way, the reason why I call Steve Cortez a grifter is because, according to many people um, in right-wing media, when the curtains are up, they don't actually believe what they say. They are just um, trying to convince their audience, uh, and they're also trying to play into their audience. So it is sort of this uh, circular loop, this um, this feedback loop, that is really, really destroying a lot of this country because of this massive partisanship that we're beginning to see, or not that we're beginning to see, but that we're uh, seeing right now. Now, of course, on the um, Chiron, what's, that, what's the thing that scrolls into Chiron? Whatever that is. Uh, it's talking about the January 6th commission being a purely political exercise. Very, very smart. Very, very smart, according to Newsmax. 
Okay, so we did our Orange Man Bad segment, which of course we needed to do, and uh, we also did our Grifter Whip of the Week segment, so we knocked out two birds with one stone, um, as a non-vegan would say. Now, if you want to see more coverage, more coverage of grifters in the right-wing media sphere, subscribe to In Progress with Raymond Perez, and even go to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez. Follow me on Twitter, I follow back. Follow me on Instagram, I follow back. And uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. You know what? I'm going to throw that one in there. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I don't care. Now, let's continue into our next segment. So we've done 30 minutes on U.S. politics, at least for now. And we are going to move into a little bit of discussion of world politics. Because, of course, just because you live in the United States, as I assume all of you do, you can't just turn a blind eye to world politics. And, of course, we're going to start with a massive Massive election coming up in Peru. Peru. Now, Peru is a beautiful nation, as I'm sure you may or may not know. Uh, it is in the western part of South America. Um, I think it's, yeah, right underneath Ecuador, right above Chile and Argentina. Uh, Argentina, of course, if you don't speak Spanish. <laughs> okay, and it's to the uh, west of Brazil. What, what did I just say? That's not even how it's pronounced, right? Okay, I don't speak Brazilian Portuguese. I do speak Spanish, but Brazil is kind of, uh, is, is kind of pushing it. Okay, Peru. Let's go into Peruvian politics as it is occurring right now. So, Peru is a beautiful nation, uh, as I believe I mentioned. It has, like many nations in South America, it has a distinct struggle for indigenous rights. I would consider it analogous partially to the civil rights movement in the United States. You have a massive indigenous population in these regions. Uh, they primarily, I believe, are Quechua-speaking, which is a sort of, I think it's an Incan language, a very old Incan language. Uh, well, not very old because it's spoken now, but it's a language that used to be spoken by the Inca, I believe. It could be a different language, but it's definitely in the same family. So the Quechua-speaking uh, peoples are really fighting for indigenous rights in Peru, but that's not the only problem that we're seeing in Peru. So, of course, uh, the Peruvian government has been in a, let's say, a, a political crisis since um, 2017. And, well, first, they've been in a lot of political crises. Uh, it didn't just start in 2017. You, of course, have uh, the Shining Path, um, the Tupac Amaru uh, revolutionary movement. You have a lot of these different uh, movements that began in around the 80s. And you saw guerrilla campaigns that were being fought um, throughout Peru. They still kind of exist today, but they don't really. Um, but these but these parts of the government... Um, and these terrorist organizations that continue fighting have definitely struck a major chord in Peru. Okay, so that's a little bit of a background on what's happening in Peru, or not what's happening, what happened in Peru. And now we're beginning to see a political crisis that has begun in uh, 2017, and it's continuing until today. Now, the most major part of this crisis, where you may have heard of it, was the 2019-2020 constitutional crisis that uh, was occurring throughout the, um, I believe, the like right before COVID was, was occurring. I remember hearing about a lot of the Peru problems. So first I should talk about the presidency of Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, or PPK in um, his initials in Spanish, PPK. So basically Kuczynski was sort of corrupt. I mean, pre pretty, pretty laughably corrupt in a sense. Uh, so you, you began to see a lot of different issues that occurred between the government and, and Congress, which culminated in 2017 when the Congress tried to impeach Kuczynski. Now, the reason why they were impeaching him was because Kuczynski had uh, received 
let's say, advisory fees, uh, or let's say in a different tone, bribery, um, from the Brazilian company Odebrecht. Now, Odebrecht uh, was a construction company, and they were extremely corrupt as well, as tends to be the case with Brazilian companies. Uh, and basically, Kuczynski had received money from them. Um, so Kuczynski denied that, uh, but then he said that his company had received money, so there were different issues with that, and the Congress tried to impeach him. Now, that did not work out. Uh, the impeachment failed, and Kuczynski then almost immediately pardoned uh, the scandal-laden President Alberto Fujimori. I think Fujimori's major claim to fame is that he was the first Asian president in South America. He was Japanese-Peruvian, um, and I think definitely the first Asian president of Peru. I believe it is true the first Asian, maybe only Asian president of South America. So Fujimori was also extremely corrupt in a, in a very real sense. Now, Fujimori was basically the Peruvian Reagan. He uh, massively deregulated the economy. He was a major neoliberal in the economic sense, meaning he supported deregulation. He supported uh, tax, um, uh, lowering taxes. He supported uh, free trade. But there's a question of how much Fujimori is responsible for these changes. Of course, um, you began to see the creation of the Washington Consensus, which was uh, this neoliberal consensus that began to uh, really make its mark in South America, in developing countries around the world, and especially in the United States, sometimes it's referred to. So the International Monetary Fund uh, really wanted a stable Peruvian economy in order to give them loans, and the Peruvian economy had been famously not successful. You had massive inflation, you had massive uh, uh, deficits. So the Peruvian economy needed to be put into control to get loans, and Fujimori uh, tried to do that. Um, the, other th the other important thing to note is that uh, there were a lot of different economic um, issues that occurred under Fujimori's term, but that wasn't really what the problem was. Uh, the problem instead was the corruption and the human rights violations that, uh, that Fujimori was part of. So Fujimori was pardoned, um, that pardon was eventually overturned. I believe in 2018 it was overturned. Uh, and Pepeka, or Kuczynski, was actually in a massive uh, crisis as a result of not only the pardon, but also uh, eventually you saw a lot of different videos um, called the Kenji videos that basically were um, Kuczynski trying to buy votes in order to stop impeachment. Okay. Kuczynski resigned in 2018, but that really did spark the massive political crisis that we're seeing today, uh, which really resulted in a erosion of faith in the Peruvian government. Now, I'm going to skip ahead, like very far ahead, into what's happening today. Um, so basically, or really what's happening um, since 2020. So of course, in the COVID pandemic, that really struck, uh, and you had um, the economic crises that were associated with that. So basically, you saw massive unemployment. In fact, Peru's economy was hit the worst of any nation in South America. And Peru was basically widely panned for its lackluster COVID-19 response. In fact, you had uh, very few ICU units. You had very few, or you had a deficit in oxygen. And basically, COVID-19 had really, really struck Peru hard. Uh, for instance, of course, you had the uh, a drop in GDP by a third in Peru. So basically, perhaps that created a avenue for the Congress to begin impeachment proceedings on Martin Vizcarra. Uh, okay, so basically, uh, the 
Impeachment proceedings were a bit unpopular in the country. Uh, Vizcarra was part of the, uh, the Kuczynski party called, uh, PPK, uh, as well as, as his initials, PPK. Um, the party was called, uh, Peruvianos por el Cambio, which is Peruvians for change. And Cambio was spelled with a K to be, to be cool, uh, but also to be, um, uh, to be PPK like the president. Anyway, Vizcarra was part of that party and, uh, or at least he was supposedly part of that party until, um, he left the party, but the party still supported him, except when they didn't. And basically, Vizcarra did not have a very, he, he was, he was not very able to have a governing coalition, and he was very weak, which meant that he was then vulnerable to attack. And he was eventually impeached by Manuel Merino, um, and Manuel Merino's, uh, faction in Congress, which was, uh, extremely important because that was, basically ex like like criticized throughout the western world throughout western media even um even people like uh Janine Añez in Bolivia and um and, and others throughout the area especially in the Andean community they criticized that impeachment proceeding because it was uh, anti-democratic according to them so even despite it being anti-democratic it did fail in um September but literally the next month they started impeachment proceedings again in October, because basically they weren't going to let up until Vizcarra resigned. And eventually, Vizcarra was uh, removed from office. Um, it, it's kind of weird how they did that, uh, but basically they removed him for what is called moral incapacity, uh, which is, it's kind of like higher crimes and misdemeanors in America, where it doesn't really mean anything. But he, anyway, the issue was that they removed him, or at least they requested presidential vacancy, which means that they wanted him to resign, and he basically had to step down. Okay, so Vizcarra steps down. Uh, that, that is extremely unpopular in Peru, and you see a massive movement against that, a protest movement that, uh, that really does destroy the next administration. So Manuel Marino takes office after Vizcarra resigns, and almost immediately he has to resign. He actually only lasts for five days because of the protests and people are killed in these protests, which leads Marino to resign. Uh, the other important thing to note is that Marino was sort of the mastermind behind the first impeachment proceedings. And he even like talked to the military and got their support before, um, or, or at least he told them that he was going to impeach uh, before he actually filed for impeachment. So, that was a major issue in Peru, and the constitutional crisis that occurred really began to snowball. Um, and the constitutional crisis, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, this, this impeachment of Vizcarra, and the massive instability in Peru basically is this backdrop that we're seeing uh, when we go into the next elections. And we'll talk about that next. If you ever want to hear more about how nations and their politics work, and very brief summaries of uh, a lot of history, definitely subscribe to In Progress with Raymond Perez or go to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez and follow me on different social media accounts. I do follow back and I will comment on different elections on those social media accounts. So definitely get your fill by going to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez or subscribing at In Progress with Raymond Perez. Okay, so... Let's discuss the Peruvian elections that are upcoming. So remember when we discussed Manuel Marino and him coming to the presidency, but then needing to resign immediately because he was so unpopular? Well, the issue was that Marino, as we discussed, talked to the military, asked them to back him, uh, and the military 
was extremely far right or is extremely far right and uh, that was roundly criticized by peruvians uh and the media as well as even um a lot of foreign governments even some right-wing foreign governments like the bolivian government uh and and even the organization of american states so that was roundly criticized and marino was forced to resign uh in favor of francisco sagasti and francisco sagasti himself is still dealing with a lot of these different issues, but Sagasti has claimed that his administration is a caretaker administration that is really trying to stop all this bloodshed and all this fighting that has been occurring in the past uh, several years in Peru. Okay, so we kind of mentioned uh, Martin Vizcarra and the fact that he sort of got kicked out in a very, let's say, problematic way, but Martin Vizcarra has actually now been criticized for his handling of the vaccines uh, in Peru. So, of course, the COVID-19 vaccines, which are really only detested in the West, um, outside of the West, people are begging for COVID vaccines. But right now in Peru, there are definite issues with the vaccines. So there is now a scandal called Vacuna Gate or Vaccine Gate, Vacuna being Spanish for vaccine. And basically the question is whether Martin Vizcarra uh, abused his power in order to get vaccines for him and his friends and family. We can kind of make a comparison to the Cuomo scandal, where Cuomo got tests for himself and his family before anyone else got tests, uh, his family being, of course, Chris Cuomo, uh, who is a CNN anchor. Now, this is occurring in Peru under the term Vacunagate, and, uh, the issue is that certain people got vaccines before they were supposed to. So, for instance, Hernando de Soto, who is a uh, Peruvian economist, and he's a kind of right-wing in the sense that he supports um, neoliberalism and deregulation, as well as austerity, which is an issue. And he's also supportive of Fujimori, um, and he was also a presidential candidate in the recent elections. He got a vaccine before he was supposed to, which was an issue, of course. And Vacunagate really basically vindicated the removal of Vizcarra, but perhaps uh, not in the way that some on the right would want it to. Of course, I, I mentioned that the right uh, supported Marino, but I should also mention that Vizcarra was not a leftist or was not left-wing. He was more in the center-right. And although he sometimes disagreed with the right that backed him, um, he was still part of that center-right. Okay, so Vacunagate began to rock Peruvian uh, politics right when the elections were beginning to happen. So Sagasti was a caretaker president, as we mentioned, and uh, he was going to foresee the 2021 elections, and we'll discuss them here. So Peruvian elections work like, or at least Peruvian presidential elections, work like the French election system, if you're familiar with that. Uh, basically, there is the first round where a bunch of people run, and then the second round where only the top two vote-getters run. So the first round had a lot of different people running, um, of course, you had uh, Hernando de Soto, as we mentioned. He ran on um, the Avanza País uh, party line uh, that is called Go On Country in English, although that doesn't really make that much sense. Avanza is, it's really weird, actually. In like a lot of these different languages, like Spanish, French, Italian, they have words like Avanza, uh, En Avant in French, and Avanti in Italian, which aren't really translatable in English. They, they, like This one translates it as go on, but I would translate it as forward. So anyway, regardless, Avanza País, he ran on, uh, that was forward the country, I guess. 
And he placed fourth inside the election, who was running on a libertarian policy. Now, to be very clear, he actually did not found the party. That party existed before him, but he just like, kind of took the mantle because the party was just on the right, and he just took it and said, okay, this is now my party, and it's a libertarian party now. So not only was Hernando de Soto running, uh, Rafael López Aliaga ran on a conservative platform. He placed third in the Peruvian election. Now, that was right behind Keiko Fujimori, who is a major name in Peruvian politics. Now, as I mentioned, Alberto Fujimori is a major name in Peruvian politics, and he pushed forward right-wing economic policy, as we discussed in the last segment. So Keiko Fujimori is the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, and she is similarly right-wing, and she similarly pushes Fujimorist policy. She is part of the Fuerza Popular Party, or the Popular Force Party, uh, and that party is, as I said, a Fujimorist party, meaning to support the policies of Alberto Fujimori. So... Uh, Keiko Fujimori was briefly arrested, briefly imprisoned in uh, 2018 with the Odebrecht scandal that we discussed in the last segment. And that scandal uh, sort of basically made its way throughout the entirety of Peruvian politics, and Keiko Fujimori was arrested and detained. So she eventually appealed that detention um, because it was unlawful, according to her, and it was denied, but eventually it was accepted. Uh, so in 2020, she was uh, released from jail, and as a result, she was able to run in the 2021 Peruvian elections. So she is uh, running behind um, Pedro Castillo, who is uh, a left-wing candidate, um, in the Free Peru Party, that, that party is sometimes called Peru Libre, uh, especially in Spanish and most often in Peru, of course. So Pedro Castillo and uh, Keiko Fujimori placed one in two, meaning that they went into the second round of the election, and that election is coming up on, I believe, June 6th, so we will know about that then. So basically, the important thing to know is that uh, Castillo is a left-wing candidate, and um, in Although, so when I call him left-wing, I should say that he is uh, socially right-wing. He opposes abortion, he opposes euthanasia, he opposes uh, same-sex marriage. Um, but he is left-wing economically. He is an agrarian, he is a populist, and he supports... Uh, agrarian means he supports farmers, and uh, populist meaning that he appeals to this um, anti-elitist uh, belief that is generally true in a lot of South American politics. So... Basically, the question is whether Peru will uh, revitalize this pink tide. Now, the pink tide is the rise of the left that has been occurring in Latin America throughout the 1990s and 2000s. Of course, you have um, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva in Brazil, um, Evo Morales in Bolivia, and uh, of course, you have Nicolas Maduro right now in Venezuela, and Evo Morales, whose successor, um, Luis Arce in Bolivia, is also a socialist, and uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina. Uh, and these various leaders have seen a collapse in popularity throughout Latin America. The only two nations that still support this pink tide movement, this growth of socialism and the left in South America, are Venezuela under Maduro and Brazil under Arce, uh, excuse me, Bolivia under Arce. And um, you're actually seeing a backlash 
to the pink tide, sometimes called the blue tide, uh, which was the rise of conservatism throughout the 2010s. And that comes from Argentina, that comes from especially Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and that is actually increasing throughout uh, the entire South, the entirety of South America, because it seems as if, and I'm not making any claims, but it seems as if the pink tide uh, was marked by irresponsible spending, by um, inflation, hyperinflation, especially in Venezuela, especially in Peru, you saw um, massive inflation. So the pink tide is beginning to uh, to wane. Now, the blue tide that is coming over the pink tide at the moment seems to be uh, unpopular in some parts of South America. So as I mentioned, Venezuela and, and Bolivia have continued the pink tide. Bolivia, of course, had a, uh, let's say, a change in government um, where Morales had to resign in favor of Janine Añez, as I briefly mentioned uh, earlier in, in the last segment. And um, Añez was a right-wing uh, president in Bolivia, and she probably illegitimately took power from uh, Morales. Now, now in the recent uh, Bolivian elections, you saw Arce beat um, the right wing and come to power uh, in Bolivia. So the blue tide is beginning to wane, according to some. Bolsonaro has been, um, Bolsonaro, who is a, a right wing uh, extremist in Brazil, has actually seen his popularity decline as a result of his failure on covid and not only is that happening, we're looking at Peru right now, and it seems as if uh, Castillo, who is a left-wing um, uh, candidate for the Peru Libre Party, he is—he seems as if he is going to defeat uh, Keiko Fujimori, who represents this right-wing neoliberal uh, privatizing force uh, and deregulating force that is taking place not only in Peru, but throughout South America. And Fujimori represents that uh, part of politics. So the question is, which one will survive, the far left or the far right? And it seems as if in Peru, at least for right now, the pink tide seems to be moving forward. Now, to be very clear, the pink tide is not necessarily this amazing movement. Uh, even though there are some left-wing policies, especially economically, that the pink tide tends to support, um, in many parts of the continent, Actually, they do not support social liberalism in the sense that they do not support like gay marriage, they don't support abortion, they don't support euthanasia, although there is a question of uh, whether you can really blame them given the Catholic heritage of those nations. Um, it seems as if, especially in Peru, you are beginning to see the left co-opt some of these uh, right-wing uh, points. Now, despite that, you do still have uh, some left-wing social policy especially in Bolivia, that seems to be the case, um, and support for indigenous rights tends to be the case in uh, in some left-wing parties throughout South America. But for right now, it seems as if the social left-wing part of the South American left is not actually linked. The other important thing to note is that the pink tide tends to be anti-American, so we need to be looking forward to what happens in terms of America's role inside the uh, inside South America, which it, which America tends to consider, for better or for worse, its backyard, and it seems as if America, which has extremely tight relations with a lot of these nations, America has extremely strong relations with Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, uh, Mexico, and a lot of different nations in Latin America. The question is, will the rise of the left inside Latin America lead to a deterioration of relationships? with the United States. It seems as if that could be the case, but with 
um, someone like Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador or AMLO, uh, that's not necessarily the case. So Mexico, for instance, uh, who elected AMLO, I believe in 2018, um, AMLO actually had a lot of support for Donald Trump, who was actually a right populist in the United States. So it may not be the case that the left wing winning, the left wing ascendant in Mexico, in Latin America writ large, is actually spelling the end of American dominance in the region. However, it should be noted that a lot of left-wing activists in South America actually do oppose American intervention, uh, especially in Venezuela, especially in Bolivia, and that's actually how a lot of these unpopular left-wing governments keep control inside uh, their country, which is true for a lot of different countries that are left-wing, like uh, North Korea, um, like Cuba, about not actually necessarily Cuba, but specifically North Korea is what I'm thinking of. They use the threat of American imperialism as a way to keep their population supporting left-wing governments, even if the left-wing governments are not necessarily providing in the same way that you would expect a left-wing government to. So we will see whether Pedro Castillo or Keiko Fujimori actually wins this upcoming election in June and what that spells not only for Peru, but for South America writ large, because we're going to see uh, how this affects the entirety of South America, Argentina, of course, Brazil, of course, in these nations, um, and also Chile, which is having its own problems, which we may discuss later, uh, and also Colombia, which is also having its own problems. We will see how this election affects the entirety of South America and whether this election is actually fair, which it seems like it will be under the Sagasti administration. So that seems to be the case right now, and we will continue to keep an eye on Peru, and we will have an update next week, or actually the week after, uh, where we see who wins this election. So if you'd like to keep in touch with In Progress with Raymond Perez, subscribe on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, as they say, and go to linktree.com slash Raymond Perez to see more of this coverage on Peru, especially on Twitter and Instagram, where you can follow me and I will follow you back. So now we will finally move on to our last segment which is just me saying thank you for watching. Seriously, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening on any platform. And we will see you next week. Now remember, the change we need to see is always in progress. Thank you for listening.